Father God, we know we need you. And I'm praying also, Lord, in conjunction with any who might have a doubt, a question mark over that statement, but somehow one way or another, this word is reaching them today, whether in the sanctuary or online, or it's a recording or some other means by which the message is coming to them, they are aware that these words are posing that question in their heart. Do I need the Lord? Why do I need the Lord? What do I need from the Lord? And I pray, Lord, that you would make each and every one of us aware that we do need you and want you and that the ways that you have for us are better than our own ways. We need your guidance. We need your strength. We need your correction. So may we not resist it, Lord. We submit ourselves to you today. If that's your prayer, will you just make that statement to the Lord? Will you just say, I submit to you, Jesus? I submit to you, Jesus. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. A decade ago, a film came out, and full disclosure, it pretty much had this poster. Except where it says on your bulletin today, the prophet's speech, the film poster said the king's speech. Maybe you saw it. It was a story not about the king who is king over the UK now, as of today, the new king, Charles III. Not about his mother, the former queen, God rest her soul. But about her father, King George VI, whose first name was actually Albert, and as we are told, was called Bertie by the family. And he had a speech impediment, a stammer, that grew worse, as is often the case for those that have that condition, in times of stress or pressure or public speaking. And so it is a point of historical fact that the prince who was becoming king because of a lengthy story I won't go into related to the abdication of his brother, he was in the position of being probably, in that era, one of the most called upon speakers in the world. Imagine if the thing that you were most called to do was the thing that was most difficult for you to do. Imagine if your life purpose and your perception in the world that is, the way that people see you, the legacy that you will live and leave revolves around something that you cannot do without feeling as though you are fumbling and stumbling and tripping over your own tongue. Imagine having to be king and not being able to clearly and confidently speak. So it was that he called upon an actor well, finally, actors are good for something. I say that as an actor. So I say it tongue-in-cheek. But this actor had also studied elocution. He was an Australian gentleman who tutored the king in how to speak. 
But the story of the film, which is really a wonderful story and really a wonderful film, I encourage you to watch it if you never have. And if you haven't seen it in 10 years, go and watch it again. It'll give you appreciation for public speaking and maybe for kings. And maybe it's a time when we could use a little appreciation for kings. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Monarchy is actually an interesting subject for people in the modern era, and maybe especially for people living in the United States of America. But it's an important subject because, after all, when you come to Christ, you are coming to a king. And what he's bringing you and I into is a kingdom. So believe it or not, you have a king over you, whether you are part of the UK or not. And how you feel about that king has something to say about how you feel about kings in general which is not to say that they're perfect. There's a certain king named Saul that's part of our Samuel story. And in fact, in the next few weeks, you and I are going to be looking at the fall of Saul. Kings are people too. Yesterday at Pastor Joe's celebration, one of his sons, Joby, was talking about how pastors, well, he didn't use this phrase, but this is what it boils down to. Pastors are people too, warts and all. You knew that by looking at me. I won't. Belabor the point. Kings are people. Kings are fallible. Jesus is a person, but he's infallible because he's not just a person. He's also God. Well, God is not only a person, but persons and the originator of persons. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a king. Jesus is God. What has all of this got to do with the prophet's speech? Well, most of all, it's because the king's speech and the prophet's speech have a certain relationship and that has to do with what is it that a king has to say? It's not just the ability to say it, but ultimately it's the content of what one is saying that matters most. And in fact, that is part of what you see in that story, that film, The King's Speech, that the tutor who's giving elocution lessons isn't just a guy who's talking about she sells seashells down by the seashore. Why did I give myself that belaboring point? But what he's saying is, that when you speak, you speak out of the heart. The Bible has something to say about that. That it's out of the heart that flow the issues of life, the subject of speech, the purpose of living. The king's speech in the best of kingdoms, under the best of kings, is about giving voice to what God has to say. And that's what the prophet Samuel knew and understood. That was the throne and the sovereign role that had been entrusted to Saul. But Saul failed ultimately to understand that being king or being servant is really the same. It is being in service to God and to God's people. When Samuel in first chapter 12 comes to give his speech to the nation that day, he gives voice to the words of God. And so as we hear what he has to say to them then, it will have relevance for you and I today. Since we had a wonderful break of a message last week, which was really part and parcel of everything God's been speaking to us about in this season with Pastor Hinge's wonderful message, nevertheless, I want to give you an opportunity, and me too, I'm there with you, to refresh ourselves today on where we're at in the Samuel story. So let's do a quick review. And really what we're reviewing here is not so much the details of the narrative of the events, although I'll make a few reminders and refreshers for you in that, 
But looking at the, the messages that we've had over the last couple of months since July, I want to remind you of the lessons, the takeaways. Turn to somebody next to you and say, this is where we learn what to do with it. This is where we learn what to do with it. Application. Samuel was the baby that Hannah asked for. Hannah, a mother who couldn't conceive. And she prayed diligently and desperately to the Lord, and the Lord heard her cry. In fact, the name Samuel sounds like God hears in the Hebrew language. And so she named him Samuel because she said, I asked for him, and God gave him to me. Isn't it interesting that that boy that was born to her is the prophet that the whole nation would come to and ask for a king. And God gave them a king because they asked for it. So in the Samuel story is this really important lesson, which is when you ask for things, God hears you and God answers. Amen. He takes your requests seriously. Now that's a wonderfully rich and it sounds like a joyous answer at first or a joyous lesson, but there's sort of two sides to that sword. Be careful what you ask for. Because God hears what you ask, you ask for. And sometimes what God says is, you're not asking for the right thing, but if you're going to keep asking for it, I'm going to give it to you. And sometimes you really get it. But in this case, what Hannah was asking for, God was glad to give because he answers the prayers of the needy in a special way. So this boy that was born to Hannah was born in a situation in which she had already made a covenant with God. If you give me a child, I'll give that child to you. In other words, I'm asking you for what I feel you made me to be, but I'm ready to give it all into your hands. And so she gave her son Samuel to be raised, though she attended to him and visited him and brought him clothes and was constantly caring for him and loving for him. And you can be sure, Hannah, a mother of prayer, was praying for him. But she gave Samuel to be raised by Eli and Eli's sons, who were also priests, in the tabernacle of the Lord in Shiloh. But unfortunately, Eli, in his doddering old age, was becoming less than a keen sword himself in the hand of the Lord. And his boys were taking advantage of their position and abusing the people and enriching themselves in doing so in a way that betrayed the Lord and betrayed the people. They were corrupt. They were not attentive to the Lord. And so the Lord said, I'm going to bring judgment on them for that, but I'm going to show them what an attentive servant is like. He's a patient priest to me. He will be faithful to follow me. He will be faithful to trust in me. He will do what I ask him to do because he will listen to what I say. He will believe it and he will act on it. And in fact, when Samuel is born and as he grows up into a little child, the first encounter that we are told of him having with the Lord in a direct way is him at the end of the day going to rest on his little bed and hearing a voice and thinking it was Eli the priest. And after three times, finally, Eli the priest has it on his own understanding to say, it's the Lord that's speaking to you, Samuel. So when you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. It becomes the hallmark of Samuel's life. And again, we can see in Samuel 
the ideal of what God is asking us for. Not that Samuel himself is perfect, but the ideal of an attentive servant is one who listens to and obeys God's word. And that's going to be the problem for Saul, the king, that ultimately the people ask for, that God gives, that Samuel anoints, is that Saul pays more attention to his own will than God's and takes things into his own hands. That, unfortunately, is not in the pattern of Samuel. That's more in the pattern of Eli and the troubled priests who were his sons. And it was because of their unfaithfulness and that of the people in general that the glory of God had departed. God allowed the ark to be stolen by enemy uh, Philistine peoples that were um, currently oppressing Israel at that time. And there were deaths. Eli and his sons die on the same day. One of Eli's daughters-in-law, one of his, wife, his son's wives, in childbirth dies. And with her last breath, names that child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. So we saw in that that turning from God has consequences. Will you say that? Turning away from God has consequences. But his grace continues. That's really important because both of those things are true at the same time. Do you realize that God says to us, if you disobey me, if you disregard me, it's not going to go well for you. Sometimes we think that because of God's grace, that sort of gives us a pass. We all know the reference to monopoly, get out of jail free, right? God didn't give you a get out of hell free card. He paid to get you out. And me too. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So, Jesus didn't pay it all so that we could say, off to hell I go. That's what Paul said. Paul said, you were not saved just to go back to what you were doing before. And yet Paul was accused sometimes of preaching that because he preached about the grace of God. But the grace of God exists to set you free. And sometimes the only way a stubborn soul is going to be set free is if someone righteous enough and holy enough to do it can discipline that soul. And the Holy Spirit can do that. And sometimes we need it. And what happens if we allow that? is that what we hear from the prophet, from the word, from the spirit, is return to the Lord with all your heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we saw how even the people who had stolen the ark, the Philistines, were engaged in a kind of ritualistic, superficial worship that was not that different from Israel at that time. Not because God hadn't shown Israel how to worship, but because Israel had grown complacent about it. And so superficial ritual is not true and worthy worship. It isn't enough to go through the motions. And if you go through the motions enough and lose touch with the reality of God, lose touch with his word, grow deaf to his word, grow blind to his work, have a hardened heart, you can be doing all of those emotions and be just as lost and bereft of glory as were the Philistines. What God is looking for is real worship in spirit and in truth. 
What God looks on is the heart. Saul, as we'll see in coming weeks, is clearly disobedient to the Lord in an act of worship. He performs a ritual sacrifice that offends God because it isn't the sacrifice that God is looking at. It's his heart. And he doesn't do what God told him to do. He didn't listen to the prophet's speech. He didn't believe the Lord's word. And so he loses the kingdom and God's favor. That was part of the problem that God knew would be a possibility when the people went in search of a king. Because the problem there was also the heart. The people didn't want a king because they wanted to serve the Lord better. They wanted a king to protect them. They wanted a king to be like all the other nations, they said. And the problem with that, that Samuel tried to make them aware of, that the Spirit of the Lord spoke to them about, is that God is your king. You have a king. Which is not to say that there can't be earthly kings. And by the way, just because a country doesn't have a king doesn't mean it doesn't have a head of state. And even if it's not a country, every corporation, every organization has leaders. Leaders exist. <laughs> leaders are a thing. Leaders are a reality. Some people out there are budding anarchists perhaps say, well, that's the problem. We need no leaders. But as it turns out, no leaders is not an improvement. What we need are good leaders. And what the word says, what the Lord says is, good leaders will be godly leaders because ultimately God is the leader of us all. God is our king. And so to be submitted to him is to have him enthroned in our hearts and in our lives. And when we do, when we allow him to be on the throne of our heart and our life, then the anointing that is on him like a crown flows to you. The anointing of the Lord comes to his anointed. That's what the king of Israel was called, the anointed of the Lord. Saul was the one that God said, here is the king you've asked for. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. Now, he was a good-looking guy. He was a, a, a warrior, an athlete, head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd. But he was also a neophyte and somewhat in unconfident in himself. And maybe, just maybe, nobody saw in Saul the kind of character that they would expect to be king. But when the Holy Spirit anointed him, just as the prophet of God Samuel had anointed him, what they saw and heard in Saul was the Spirit of the Lord at work. The anointing of the Holy Spirit brings prophetic wisdom, right living, empowered evangelism. Remember when we were talking about King George VI at the beginning of the message, and I said, imagine if the thing you were called to, you couldn't do. That is life in Christ. You are called, according to the words of Jesus, to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, go and do it. Here's where the part where we learn how to live it out. Except, how do you do that? Can you be perfect? Guess what? If you think you can, you've already revealed your imperfection because you're wrong. You can't do it and neither can I. Who then shall perfect us? Remember Paul? When I want to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. When I want not to do the wrong thing, I still end up doing it. Who's going to save me from this? Christ Jesus who justifies. 
through his sacrifice, which is perfect because it's in line with the Lord. He sacrificed himself, not because he wanted to, but because he was willing to, because he wanted you. Because the Father wants you, because God loves you and me, he gave his only son so that we could be perfected. The Holy Spirit enables us to do what we could never do, to be what we would not otherwise be. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God to equip us to do the works of God which have been prepared for us in advance. And those works include victory over the enemy. So in 1 Samuel chapter 11, Saul is king but becomes victorious warrior and unites a divided nation in the spirit of the Lord to bring about victory over the enemy of that is the Philistines, but also revival in the nation. And where there are those that had doubted him or had failed to honor him, and some of them said, look at this great King Saul. Now we believe in you. Let's kill all the ones that didn't believe in you. He says, no, we're not going to kill anybody because we're going to be one unified nation. Today's a day to celebrate. Today's a day to honor the Lord and love one another. That's my paraphrase, but that's the essence of the spirit of Saul's reign in that moment. It's a high watermark for Saul. Unfortunately, he doesn't maintain it. And the reason he doesn't maintain it, why doesn't he maintain it? That will be the focus of coming weeks. But today, we're going to talk about the prophet's speech. It's kind of a concluding moment in the middle of an ongoing story. And so we are coming to the end of the Samuel story, by God's grace, as a sermon series, not the end of 1 Samuel even, but we're planning to go through the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. Next year, as God allows, I'm going to continue in the book of 1 Samuel with you. But what you'll see is, though Samuel will always remain a, a, an important figure in the life of Israel, and he goes on to have many important moments yet still, the story shifts to Saul and then to David. Next year, we're going to look at the days of David and a man after God's own heart. But today... We have a moment to hear a kind of commencement speech from Saul, excuse me, from Samuel, a, a kind of memorial speech in a way, in which Samuel is going to summarize his life in front of the nation as a life of integrity. It's not arrogance. He is actually giving them evidence. Let me say that again. It's not arrogance, it's evidence. And the evidence isn't something that he's just producing out of thin air. He's coming before them with decades of living behind him and public leadership in front of them. And he's saying, you and I, let's look at it together. What does my life show? Have you ever read those uh, near-death experiences? I'm not recommending that you necessarily do that or not. But people talk about having their life flash in front of their eyes. Well, what are you going to have in front of you? Because guess what? That's the evidence. That's the life that you lived. That's the testimony that you and I get to give. Not what we think we did, but what we really did. Not what we wish we would have said, but what we really said. Not how we should have behaved, but how we did. What we did. And who we did it to and with. That's the life. And Samuel says, here's my life. And as God is my witness, and as you are my witnesses, the testimony of my life is, I have served the Lord, and I serve you. And so now I'm a witness, says Samuel, to the truth of the Lord, 
that he has helped you and he will help you. And I call you to hear him and obey. That's the prophet's speech in a nutshell. And then the story pivots to a center on Saul and the fall of Saul. Steps that Saul takes that consecutively lead him farther and farther away from the Lord. And the reason why I think it's so important that you and I learn about Saul in this section of his life is really the concluding message of this series and of that sequence. It's uh, chapter 15 of the book. But first we'll talk about the real kernel, the seed of the problem, which is a problem in Saul's heart. And it, it manifests in, believe it or not, impatience. Saul isn't willing to wait for the Lord anymore, so he takes things into his own hands. He pulls the reins into his control, and in doing so, he loses grip on the kingdom. And more importantly, he walks out of the anointing. So it's worth looking at, but that is to come. Today, Samuel 12. Let's look at this speech that prophet gives. So he's overseeing a transition in this season of his life, and it's his latter years. He's an old man by this point. In fact, his sons and probably grandsons are old enough that they could be leaders themselves. But remember, even the scripture says they didn't turn out so well. And it's not a judgment upon Saul. Excuse me, Samuel. It's so hard for me not to <laughs> call Samuel Saul and Saul Samuel. I remember once, I won't uh, mention it, but there was a pastor who gave a wonderful message about Jacob and Esau, and in it he also referenced Ishmael and Isaac. And let me tell you, we loved the message, but we said, Pastor, we need you to re-record the names because they are all over the place. <laughs> you said Ishmael, but you meant Esau, and then you said Isaac. And I hold him in no fault because I'm not ever even sure, did I say Samuel or Saul, or did I say uh, Shlomo Shapiro? I don't remember, you know. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm getting it right. So where was I? The, the address of Samuel is one in which he is preparing the people for this transition, and yet he is also continuing to give the witness of his life as the prophet of God, as the king that God has anointed uh, steps into a primary leadership role. And so all of Israel is gathered for this speech, effectively. And it is a speech that is modeled after, probably, the speech that Moses gives in Deuteronomy, and, and particularly the very end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is about to die, and the children of Israel are about to become the Joshua generation. And Joshua gives a speech very much like this at the end of the book of Joshua, the end of the conquest of Canaan. In other words, there's precedent for leaders who have served faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully over long periods of time to come to the people and say, I now need to share with you some concluding thoughts. Now, the difference is that with Samuel, it isn't fully a conclusion. Maybe there's even a sense that Samuel has that you've kind of rushed me to this because I... The Lord wasn't good enough for you, and I wasn't good enough for you, and my sons aren't good enough for you, and you wanted a king, so now I get to have my say. But there is more importantly in Samuel's heart a deep desire to connect with the people and help them to recognize what is most important in the eyes of God. And so what Samuel is calling Israel to, what he's calling you and I to, what the Lord is calling you and I to, is to live in patient 
steadfast faith and to live a life that leaves a legacy. Of what? Well, it turns out that Samuel's speech provides a pattern for good and godly living, as uh, the apostle Peter puts it in his letter. And especially how to leave a legacy as a leader. You need to have a clear conscience, not because you're kidding yourself or you're pulling the wool over your eyes or anyone else's, because remember, you can be as blind as Eli, but God sees, God knows, and God holds us to account. So when we're talking about a clear conscience, it's, it's a clear conscience before the Lord. You say, well, pastor, I've done so many things wrong. So have I. Who can wash away my sin? What can? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But if we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and have the spirit to equip us to live a good and godly life, then we can have a clear conscience before God. And when we falter and fail, as we do, we can confess our sins. And as the Apostle John tells us, God is faithful to forgive our sins. You can have a clear conscience. How many people in this city even care if their conscience is clear? They've cleared it like an etch-a-sketch. They just shake it clean and say, there, it's good. But God sees the palimpsest. He sees the ghost behind that. You know, when you rip a billboard off and there's still that etched into the surface, God knows. It's not enough to simply say, I don't have a problem with it. The question is, does God? You can have a clear conscience before God. Stand before the throne Boldly, because you see it as a throne of grace, because the grace of God has anointed you to live a life of consistent commitment with a heart focused on service to God, service to people with integrity, a true testimony to the goodness of God at work in this world, to be able to look around and see, I know there's a lot of bad, but I see good because I know God. And despite all the bad, there is good. That horrible day 21 years ago when the towers fell seemed as though there was nothing good. But there was good in the midst of the bad because God was there. And I remember at that time that this nation pulled together in faith like it never had before in my life. And I'm sorry to say like it never has again since. But it's time. To come back to God with all of your heart. Because everyone is going to stand before the assembly of everyone else. And God is on the throne. And we will have the books opened. And we will all have to answer for who we are. And how we've lived. And only God can make you right. It's worth getting passionate about, isn't it? So the prophet calls people to make a pure profession of God's glorious and reliable prophetic promises 
to his people. Do you know what the word profession means? Do you know where it comes from? It comes from the Latin, and it began as people taking vows to God in the church. Whether you like it or not, whether anyone out there likes it or not, what we call frequently the Western world was founded upon the church. The professions began in the church. The first profession was to be a pastor, a theologian, a minister. And the professions that flowed out of that, to know and judge between right and wrong in matters of law, the legal profession, to help people between life and death and in matters of disease, the medical profession, were indebted to God because only God knows the difference between right and wrong and only God can judge and only God can heal every disease and holds life and death in his hands. We have many professions today, and to professionalize means to have created standards and accountability, and that's wonderful. But a pure profession is about what is it that is speaking from your heart? What is your life about? And Samuel says, make your life about God and profess it. Tell people around you who God is and what he does. May we all strive to live with such a testimony of integrity, of witness to the faith, and of real, living, patient trust in God's promises. But you know what? The only way anyone can really live like that is by the grace of God alone. Sola gratia. Only by grace. And the grace of God is the anointing of his spirit that comes because of the anointing of the blood of his son, our savior, Jesus. That's the prophet's speech in three parts. He gives the testimony. This is who I am. I have walked before you all these years of my life since I was a little boy, says Samuel. And then he gives the witness. I've been faithful to you because I've been faithful to God because God has been faithful to me. And before I ever even came along, God's been faithful to all of us. All the righteous deeds of the Lord. Remember what the Apostle John said when he finished his gospel? This is the gospel that has been given so that you might believe, but it doesn't contain everything that Jesus did because all the world couldn't contain all the books of all the righteous deeds of the Lord. You could never, ever come to the end of everything that God has done that is so, so good. How will we spend eternity just saying, thank you for that, and thank you for that, and thank you for that? Or the better way to say it is, holy, 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 forever and ever. You say, I don't want to spend my eternity that way. I do. I want to spend it in the presence of holiness. I want to say sorry, and then I feel like the Lord says, don't say sorry. (laughs) 
The world cannot bound the goodness of God. Overflows the shores of reality. Samuel gives witness to it because, believe it or not, people don't know that God is good. They don't believe that God is good. They don't believe that God is there. They're not aware that God is aware. How will they know unless someone tells them? And how will we tell them the word of the Lord? And then they can believe in what? In God, in his promise, in the reality that he enables you and I to live the good and the right way. Real goodness. Real honesty. You know, you and I have gotten fooled by the devil and the flesh and the world to think that there isn't really any way to be truly honest. But God is honest. He never lies. Never once. Ever. Never will. God is righteous. He's never done anything wrong. Not even partially wrong. He's never failed to come through. Not one word of all God's good promises has ever or will ever fail. God never fails. So Samuel is giving himself as a testimony. He's saying, my life speaks to the nation for the Lord. And here I am, a witness. Just like Jesus said, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I made you for. That's what you'll be. You will be my witnesses. My witnesses in the assembly. By the way, Jesus is a witness in the grand assembly. Jesus comes forward and says, here is my life. Jesus is the lamb slain before the founding of the world who stands in the throne room of heaven in Revelation chapter 4. And that's his witness. That's his testimony. And it is in its very self a fulfillment of every promise. Yes, and amen to every good thing that God has ever said and ever willed because God is faithful and Jesus is God. And Samuel calls the people to fear and serve that God who has promised and who will not forsake us. At the risk of overburdening you, I want to take you through the text. See what Samuel says. I've listened to everything you've said to me, he says to the people. I've listened to you. That's a good leader, right? A leader listens. I've set a king over you. Even though I warned you, you might not like a king. And remember what he warned them about what a king would do? (laughs) He says, I warned you that a king would do all these things, and then he's going to show, I've never done it. A king's going to take things from you. I've never taxed you. I've never conscripted you. I've never forced you into service, but a king can do that. You wanted that. I gave that to you. Now I'm old and I'm gray and my sons are here with you. I have walked before you. In other words, I've been the leader from my youth until this day, a life of service. Here I stand, as Martin Luther would say, and many a year later, here I can stand, here I stand, I can do no other. In other words, this is it. This is who I am, this is what I've lived, this is what I believe, and I'm testifying to it. Now then, you testify. 
If there's anybody out there, this is that moment in the wedding that says, if there's anyone here who knows why these two should not be joined together, right? <laughs> Speak now or forever hold your peace. Samuel's doing that. If there's anyone here who has anything against me, make your claim in court. And you can do it not only in my presence, but the presence of the Lord. And now look, in the presence of his anointed. You know what the Hebrew word is there? In the presence of his Mashiach. In the presence of his Messiah. That's the word. Saul was the Messiah, which simply means the anointed of God. Saul was the Christ of ancient Israel in that moment. But where was Saul's heart? Because the heart of the Christ is what? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, pick up your cross. If you hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to give up your life, you're like me. And you'll find it. It's on the heart that God looks. So that Christ was not the Christ because for one thing, that man Saul didn't have the right heart, but he had the anointing. He walked away from the anointing because he preferred his own way. Jesus lived in the anointing because he wanted the will of God. And now the anointing of the spirit can come to you and I, but you have to be willing to let go of your will in order to receive the fullness of the Lord. So Samuel says, did I steal anybody's ox? Did I take anybody's donkey? Did I cheat anybody? Have I oppressed anybody? This is a bold thing for a man who's been leading for 60, 70 years. There's got to be a lot of people out there with beefs against Samuel. I mean, honestly, nobody leads at that level and doesn't have people that dislike them. But you know what? When somebody comes and says, I'm standing in front of you and in front of God and the king... Now's your chance. It's not an easy thing to go up there when you know that he's speaking the truth. Some of you are so afraid to talk about Jesus. Don't you realize that when you speak the truth, the truth has power? Amen. Speak the truth in love. I'm not talking about beating anybody over the head with it, but maybe part of the reason why you're afraid to witness for Jesus is because you know that when the book of your life is opened, it doesn't show a lot of Jesus there. So let him in there. Because that's the book that God's reading. It's the life that you and I are living. Did he say, did I, did I shut my eyes from a bribe? Did I let myself be blinded by greed? If I've done any of those things, if I've done any of those things, I'll make restitution. I'll make it right. Amen. And they say, you have not cheated us. You have not oppressed us. You didn't take anything from anyone's hands. And so Samuel says, God is the witness. So don't let anybody deny it. Don't let anybody bring a case later. And his anointed, the king, the Mashiach, is witness. You've not found anything in my hand that didn't belong there. And they say, yes, he is witness. They agree to it. So what, what are some things that we might note here? One thing is, it may be seem strange to you and I that Samuel makes a reference to his sons. Here I am and my sons. You know, the, uh, the, the awkwardness of it is my sons that could have been rulers, but you rejected them. And some scholars, including Robert Alter, whom I admire greatly, is a Hebrew scholar, suggest that there's kind of a verbal gesture here, a last wistful look. I could have had a dynasty as Samuel, but I don't get to. I think, however, what Samuel is doing is giving an assurance to the people. I'm here, and I'm not going to go against the king. 
I've been a leader of you all these generations, but I'm going to submit to the king, God's anointed. And my sons are not going to fight against this king. They are going to submit to God's anointed. I pray that when the time comes for me to hand the mantle of PCF over to the next one that God anoints for here, what I can say is I and no one of my kin or kind will do anything to diminish the leadership of the one that God puts here. Because it is the anointing of God that provides the appointing. Amen. And so Samuel is saying, I'm not going to be a rival for Saul, and neither will my sons. You can trust me. I've been a man of integrity, and I'm going to continue to be so. I won't try and supplant Saul. But there is perhaps a sense of Samuel's rejection, and I think it's all the more Samuel's sensitivity to the rejection of God that the people have made that permeates this speech. And so Samuel is subjecting himself to the scrutiny of the people because he is also going to subject them to scrutiny. He's not going to demand something of them that he's not submitting himself to. He's saying, I'm going to call you to account, so I'm giving my own account right now. How can we look at this and find lessons for how to live today? One thing is serve people well. Not according to what they want or ask for alone, but according to the will of God, with integrity of heart, with integrity of conduct. And in doing so, you can be unashamed and unafraid. Yeah, I read an article recently about a, 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 a reporter in Las Vegas who specialized. His beat was especially uh, on um, uh, corruption in local government and mob ties, because unfortunately that can happen. And, and very sad to say, that reporter was murdered. He was stabbed to death in front of his home. And it turns out that, of course, innocent until proven guilty, but the person who has been arrested as the key suspect in the crime was a government official who had been revealed as receiving of bribes and showing favoritism by this reporter. And I thought, what a tragic thing. Not only that a leader would 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 enrich themselves in an illegal manner at the expense of others, but would try and rectify that by killing anyone who brought light on the subject. That's bad leadership, by the way, in case anybody had any doubt. That's a bad leader. A good leader says, here's my life. It's an open book. I'm not perfect, but I've gone the way that God has called me to go. So live like that and have the courage and the conscience that that provides. And know that there's a lasting legacy that way. Now, some people may resent you for that. Oh, you know, she thinks she's so great. Oh, he always acts like he's God's anointed. Well, don't you want to be God's anointed? That doesn't mean lord it over other people. It means serve people. But yeah, people may not like you. They may resist you. They may reject you. Like they rejected Samuel. Like they rejected Jesus. But you know who won't reject you? God. And that's better. That's more important. So don't hold it against people if they reject you, but don't worry about it. Have a clear conscience before the Lord, and you will have a great reward promised by him to you. You know what it is? A crown. That's how he describes it. What he says is, I'll make you king with me. I'll make you queen with me. I will make you holy to be on my throne with me. So humble yourself before the one who will make you holy. And be willing to elevate and promote others above yourself. I admire Samuel for, despite everything that he knows, following obediently to what God has said. Imagine if Samuel would have said to God, no, I don't want to anoint Saul king. 
Well, even you, Lord, are saying that it's not right that they're asking for this. So why should I do that? Because I said so, says the Lord. And Saul is the type that doesn't follow that, but Samuel did. So be willing to promote others. Be willing to do what God calls you to do, even if it puts you into a place of more humility. People will value your humility. The Lord will value your fidelity. Don't let self-righteous pride or arrogant ambition take root in your heart. Arrogant ambition becomes a hallmark of Saul's rule, unfortunately. God rewards the faithful servant who patiently attends to his will by helping others to achieve the same and to do the same. Amen. The author of Hebrews said it this way, God is not unjust. He won't forget your work. He won't forget the love you've shown him as you have helped his people. Don't just have the empty words to the Lord. Help people in his name and by his power and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. You know what we hope for? It's the thing that made me cry. We hope to be with the Lord and one with the Lord. Not just to be on some cloud somewhere strumming a harp, but to be in the heart of holiness and to have holiness in your own heart. There's no joy that can compare there's no joy. Think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen on earth. Have you ever gone out on a cruise ship and just marveled at the size of the ocean or stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon or looked up into the spectacle of the jewelry of the Milky Way? None of that can compare to the face of God from which all the sky and planets flee because of his holiness. Amen. We want to be able to stand before his face in awe and grace and not fear. Although there's fear, it's either reverent fear or shameful fear. The author of Hebrews says, we want you to realize reverent fear. And Paul says to his protege, do your best. Here you are, Awana workers. If you ever worked in Awana, this is the Awana verse. To show yourself as an approved worker who does not need to be ashamed. Approved workers are not ashamed because you correctly handle the word of God. You give voice to the reality of the word of the Lord. You're a witness for the goodness of God, all the righteous deeds of the Lord. And so Samuel takes this opportunity to say, the Lord who is witness to us of this encounter right now is the very same Lord who delivered us. He brought your ancestors out of Egypt. He gave you Moses and Aaron. And because I'm going to... Uh, show you all of this. Now I'm going to call you to account. I'm going to call you, he says, to recognize the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your ancestors. So today, I'm calling you and I to lay open the books of our lives. Where has God helped you? How has he delivered you from physical ailment, from a broken relationship, from financial strife, from emotional turmoil, from sin and the threat of death eternal. How has God specifically delivered you, ministered to you throughout all of your life? Think of it now, because I want you and I to have it as evidence in front of us. Because what he did for his children Israel, he has not stopped doing for his children today. He delivers, he defends, he corrects and disciplines those whom he loves. He saves and now then, Samuel reminds him, it's not just in past generations. He delivered in the days of Moses. He delivered in the days of Joshua. He delivered in the days of the judges. 
and he names judges, Gideon and Barak and Jephthah. Some, some translations say that, it, that he mentions Samuel and the Septuagint, he mentions Samson. The point is, God has given you good leaders who have defended and delivered you by his spirit, even up to this day. Nahash the Ammonite is the one that, that Saul just defeated. And in all of this, was God enough to be king for you? No, you wanted your own king. So he's given you a king, but I told you, you were asking for the wrong thing. You were asking for the wrong heart. And yet you have stuck to your guns. And in your stubbornness, you hold fast to what you want. And so he's giving them a warning. If you fear the Lord, if you serve and obey him, if you don't rebel against his commands, if you and this king that you've asked for and that he's given you will follow him, good. It will be good. It will go well. But if you don't, and if you rebel, his hand will be against you and your king, just like it was against your ancestors. Here you can hear the similarity of what Joshua says in his speech. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Years later, generations later, Solomon, when the spirit of the Lord is entering the temple and the temple is being anointed, will say the same thing in 1 Kings. Every promise of God has been fulfilled. Every promise of God to you is fulfilled. If there's anywhere where you say, well, God didn't do this or God didn't do that, recognize right now it either wasn't good for God to do it or God is still working on it or you were asking for something that God has a better plan for but God doesn't break promises so be patient the theologian and the philosopher Dallas Willard who's now with the Lord says we are invited through faith in Jesus Christ to live in the kingdom of God that faith means that we know that Jesus was right about everything it's a blanket statement. Jesus isn't wrong about anything. Amen. He's the only person you can say that about. I'm not right about everything. I'm not right about many things. You're not right about everything, but Jesus is right about everything. Amen. So following him means believing in him, Amen. believing what he said, believing in his promise that he would equip us to live like him. So Samuel needs to, or is prompted to by the Lord, call for a miracle. He says, I'm standing here, and God's about to do something great. It's wheat harvest now, right? Well, I call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize that it's evidence that you did an evil thing in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king instead of trusting in God. Not because God doesn't believe in kings, not because God didn't want to give you a king, but because you didn't want what God wanted. And that was wrong. And so Samuel prays and calls on the Lord, and that very day, thunder and rain. It's interesting, isn't it, that this weekend we had rain. How long has it been since we had rain in the L.A. area? And then this weekend, rain and thunder. It's not a coincidence. You can count it as that if you want. But here I stand before you as witness. The Lord is saying, hear my voice. My voice speaks. Is not the land thirsty and dry? 
Is it not burned over and barren? Who can quench its thirst? Who can quench its fires? Who can light a better fire? Who but God can be God? Realize what you've done, says the Lord, and run to me with all your heart. And when the people see this rain and thunder, they're afraid. They stand in awe before God and Samuel, and they say to the prophet, pray to the Lord so that your servants will not die. You say, well, why are they afraid of dying? For one thing, lightning strikes and kills. It's tragic. It's true. It's tragic that people were killed right in front of the White House recently by lightning that struck down. It's a tragic thing. It could happen to anyone. When Pastora Hazel and I were visiting Monument Valley, that beautiful location in the American Southwest, famous for its cliffs and buttes, there was in the middle of the most arid and extraordinarily hot August day a huge thunderous downpour. And all of a sudden out of the sky, fat lightning bolts striking all over the land. It was frightening. I mean, it was just so awe-inspiring. And you realize the raw power, the energy that's literally lighting up the ground around you. We came to a place where there was a, you know, one of these displays that you read about you know, whatever you're looking at, and it's on a wooden kind of board. And one end of it was burned off, just blackened and smoking and charred like you'd find in a barbecue. When we went to leave the park that day, there was a huge line. Because if you've been there, you realize that there's basically one road in, one road out. And as we were going out, there was a huge backup. And then there was a helicopter landing. We said, what went on? There was a man who had been struck by lightning. That day, in that park, a mile from us, he died. God rest his soul. He was a young man. He was like 28, 29 years old. And he was struck by lightning. It happens. It's rare. I'm not trying to make you afraid. But these people see lightning coming down all around. And they say, oh, God, don't. Kill us. There's flash flooding, which we had this weekend also and in various parts of the country. He said, well, it's just a meteorological event. There's a message that Samuel says is in those events. And I'm willing to say there's a message for us today. But don't despair. You have done all this evil, says Samuel. But don't turn away from the Lord. Don't turn to other idols. They can't help you. They can't rescue you. They're empty. They're useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. You are children of the Most High. You can be a child of the Most High. You can be an inheritor of God's grace in Christ. As for me, says Samuel, far better for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. In other words, I'm here for you. I am still for you, says Samuel. You've rejected me. You've rejected the Lord. But I'm not rejecting you. I'm interceding for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. I will instruct you in the word of the Lord. But you... Be sure that in your heart there is holy reverence, fear of God, and a commitment to serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider what he's done for you. Because if you persist in doing evil, both you and your anointed, God's anointed, will perish. 
The wheat harvest comes in the summertime. It's the driest season of the year in that part of the world. So a thunderstorm and heavy rain was unseasonal, unexpected, devastating to the crop harvest, potentially lethal in its lightning and flash flooding. And it's a miraculous message that is meant to waken them, to open their eyes. They've been blind to a reality that God is enabling them to see. And so even though the storm is judgment, it's also grace. It's the blessing. It's God saying, I'm showing you that I'm here, that I'm real, that I care. I'm showing you so that you can repent, so that I will relent. God's favor is found in his promise, I will not forsake you. For my name's sake, I won't forsake you because it's my good pleasure to do what I have said I would do and fulfill my will, make you my own. Remember Paul saying to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved? Here is what God has to say on the matter. This is what comes right before that verse in Paul's letter. It's a trustworthy saying. In other words, even in the days of Paul, it was known. And Paul is saying, it's known and you can believe it. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we endure, if we are patient and if we persevere, if we are patient and if we persevere, we can receive the reward. Not because we earned the reward, not because we grabbed the reward, but because he gave the reward, but he gives it to the patient. He gives it to the persistent. He gives patience and perseverance to those who are willing to die with him in order to live with him. But if we disown him and turn away from him, then he also will disown us. In other words, he's not going to follow us into evil. He's calling us to follow him into good. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. It's for his name's sake. It's him. He is the security of it. He's the promissory aspect of it. He is the foundation. Because there's nothing higher that he can swear by, he swears by himself and says, I will do it. He will do it. What? He will free you, cleanse you, heal you, help you, lead you, guide you, deliver you, make you his own. Paul concludes the sequence by saying, God's solid foundation stands firm. The Lord knows who belongs to him, and everyone who confesses his name needs to live his way, to turn away from wickedness and to turn to the Lord. That's the prophet's speech. That's the Spirit's message. Let those who have ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. It is what Jesus said to the world. Repent and return, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is at hand. And the king is stretching his hand out to yours. You've heard the prophet's speech. Now hear the king's speech. Come to me, weary, heavy laden, full of sin, full of failure. Come to me. I'll give you rest and the rest of myself, the best of myself, all of myself. I am your sure reward. Find your help, 
your hope, your heart in me, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you today as people unworthy of your grace and aware of your glory. We come with reverence. We come with the desperation of Hannah praying for life. We come with the commitment of Samuel interceding for our nations. We come with the heart of David, humble and trusting. We come in the anointing of the Spirit. We ask for the anointing of the Spirit. We ask, Lord, for your forgiveness and the confidence to know that when you forgive, you truly forgive. That when you save, you truly save. That when you heal, you truly heal. That victory in you is real victory. So, Lord, help us not to live according to what we see with our eyes, but according to what we know and see in the faith of the Spirit and the truth of your word. And help us, Lord, to be your faithful servants, your attentive patient servants, ministers of your gospel, witnesses to your goodness, because, Lord, we love you and we belong to you. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and we rely on the goodness of your name. Amen. That wasn't just any message. Something special was transmitted today. Receive it. Believe it. Live it. And the power of the Spirit of the Lord shall anoint you all. Amen.